Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So this week, I want to think with you about how we can support our colleagues to get better work-life balance and to pay a bit more attention to their both, uh, both their mental health and their physical health. Uh, we all know colleagues who uh, have burned out, uh, who are uh, heading towards that cliff edge. <laughs> maybe we've been there, maybe we are there ourselves. Uh, and we wished that there'd been someone who could have helped us. Uh, working in Fast Track Impact, both Joyce uh, Reed, uh, my uh, my wife and uh, health coach, and of course managing director of uh, Fast Track Impact, both Joyce and I regularly talk to people in management positions who tell us how concerned they are about their colleagues and ask us to come and help them to work around these issues in more healthy ways with their colleagues. And I'm going to suggest that uh, any healthy culture, uh, whether that's an impact culture, a broader research, or just uh, the culture that we perpetuate at work generally, a healthy culture has to pay attention to these issues. And they are growing. People are under pressure like never before, uh, increasingly just feeling that sense of overwhelm. What can we do to help? Well, uh, we facilitated a discussion recently. This is uh, one of uh, the free series of events and discussion groups that we've been running as part of our Impact Culture community. And uh, both Joyce and I uh, presented a few thoughts and uh, I, uh, I started, uh, I then interviewed Joyce. Uh, and um, and we then had a discussion. Now, I uh, didn't record the discussion, but I did want to give you all a sense of what happened um, in terms of what I was saying and my conversation with Joyce. So uh, I'm going to hand over uh, to us at this point. But if you have any questions of your own, if you would like to join that debate, that um, uh, ask those questions, then just reach out. Uh, you can email both me and Joyce. Uh, just go via uh, Maddie. Uh, that's the email address that you'll find uh, RPA on our website, uh, pa at fasttrackimpact.com, and she'll get those messages to us and get you answers to your questions. Or you can reach out to me on social media, LinkedIn or Twitter is the easiest way to do so. And I would love to do what I can to get you answers, either from Joyce or from myself. I'm going to start with um, a few uh, words based on my own experience of working with these issues. Uh, and I'm coming from uh, the, the perspective of uh, working one-to-many uh, in group uh, training situations, uh, but also then working uh, very often with uh, the, the organisers who may be ahead of school, ahead of unit, um, uh, someone who's in charge of impact um, or, or some other managerial role who has this question, how do I enable my colleagues to be more resilient? Uh, because life is hard uh, and the pressures on academics uh, are growing. Um, uh, and 
So I think the, the number one complaint that, uh, that you will all hear uh, from your colleagues and that you probably have yourself is there is just not enough time in the day. Uh, and yet, I think that this is a red herring. Uh, yes, there's not enough time. We all have that same complaint. And yet, some people somehow manage to keep some balance between their work life, the rest of their life, uh, and manage to cope with those pressures better than others. Uh, and I think that we all have this, this same base problem, which is there's not enough time. Uh, uh, there are two stories which, which come to my mind in particular, which um, uh, is a, a common issue that, that I've had with, uh, with colleagues that I've tried to mentor who say, yeah, if you can just give me uh, some teaching support, let me drop a module, let me drop some kind of major task, that's what I need in order to be able to do the things that are most important and to get some work-life balance. And of course, the key reason why people don't have that balance is that they're spending their evenings and weekends doing the things that are really important. So for example, publishing papers or writing papers, in fact. Uh, and, and so the, the, the question here is, well, if I were to drop a module, give you some teaching support, uh, or in some other way uh, reduce the amount of time burden, would you then get the important things done? And crucially, would you be able to do them in your nine to five? Uh, and my experience of this is that people often don't. And so, uh, great, you've got this extra time now, but actually, uh, are you actually managing to do the important things? And it turns out that there was another issue that was blocking them from doing the important stuff. Uh, and, um, and so the, the story is a colleague of mine uh, at a former university uh, who went to our dean uh, to say, look, I, I need to get my research on track um, I, and, uh, and I can't do it with the amount of teaching that I've got. I need some help because I really want to, to do research. And his response was, uh, you don't want to do research. And she was like, no, I really do. That's the whole point. I'm here. I want to do my research. I need more time. And again, you don't want to do research. And by this point, as you can imagine, she was quite offended. <laughs> uh, and, um, and she kind of launched off. And for a third time, he said this. And at that point, the penny dropped and, uh, and they had a different conversation, which was actually uh, how much of a priority fundamentally is this? Because he again and again had given people allocation, time, taken things off their plate and they'd not actually done it. And myself, working with her afterwards, so what we discovered was, in fact, the barrier to her doing research wasn't the amount of time she had, but actually it was her confidence. Uh, and uh, and I suspect that the Dean would have been right. Had she been given lots of extra time to do this, then her imposter syndrome would have kicked in, her sense of perfectionism, people pleasing, I better do all other stuff first and get that all sorted. Uh, and actually, the more you do that, the less you're doing the research, the more this then creates this negative feedback to the sense of doubt. Uh, can I do this? Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not capable of doing this. A sense of guilt. I still haven't done this. I feel really bad about myself. And that sense of of your inability to do things and means when you do get to time to do research you're starting with this sense of inefficacy of i can't of yeah let's do something easier instead and so the cycle goes uh, goes around um uh, and of course, that's where, where we worked uh, instead. Uh, so you've got a limited amount of time for research. How can you use that limited time in a way that, uh, that, that might actually then enable you to hit the ground running and actually do something with, uh, with that time? 
Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily solve the, the work-life balance issue, but uh, here's another story. So a head of school in this case, who uh, was saying to me, I'm constantly getting uh, criticised and complained at um, for the fact that, uh, that my academics are burning out. We've got uh, an increasing problem with absence, uh, with mental health problems. And everyone is blaming me because I'm head of school. I passionately want to do something. I work my hours. I, I'm really good with my own work-life balance. I've gone through that process, but I need to try and somehow get this sorted for my colleagues because, yeah, maybe this is my responsibility. And this particular example, this person said, you know what, I'm going to trial a four-day week. So Fridays, uh, we're, we're simply, uh, we're going to reorganize our teaching, whatever is, is required, we're going to make this so you can just work four days. Um, I can't remember how long this person did this trial for, but by the end of it, uh, they were in despair because virtually nobody had taken their Fridays off. They were all still working evenings and weekends. And the penny dropped at that point that actually, this is not my responsibility as head of school. This is actually your responsibility. And each of you needs to take individual responsibility for your own well-being, work-life balance, mental and physical health. And so now we're into a very different kind of conversation. And so this is then where the, the work that, uh, that, that I've been doing uh, around impact culture and uh, my book, The Productive Researcher, comes in. And there are these two quite different approaches that you can take. Now, the long-term approach is about trying to build a different culture. Uh, now we can think about culture in two different ways. We can think about culture as, uh, well, the, the, the norms, the assumptions, the beliefs um, uh, that, uh, that are perpetuated, that we speak about uh, around, I stayed up all night uh, analysing data or writing code, I think it was, uh, that you gave us. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm finishing work early because it's Friday. Anyone fancy coming out uh, for a drink virtually or in real life with me? Yeah, there are different norms that, that we create, uh, but that stuff doesn't happen over, overnight. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the whole point of the entire book, uh, Impact Culture. Uh, how can we begin to shift these really kind of deep patterns? And ultimately, the answer comes from a sociological definition of culture, where we define culture as collective meaning making. Uh, and if we define culture as collective meaning-making, then there can be no such thing as a single unitary culture that we might set as a head of school or faculty or university. Yeah, we can do that. We can have a mission statement, a set of values, etc. But it's not going to change how people work at the grassroots. Instead, this is about enabling people to gravitate towards others who share a similar sense of purpose. It doesn't have to be the same, but something that's compatible. And now we have these multiple subcultures of different groups who uh, are now collectively finding purpose and hence meaning in their work. And ultimately, that sense of meaning and purpose emerges at the intersection between people's identities, whether that's their professional or their other identities, and their values. And so uh, that's the, the, the kind of the deep work, the long-term work, is enabling these subcultures to grow, to thrive, and thinking about some of the mechanisms that we might create, I'll mention a couple in a moment, uh, that uh, can enable us to have these deeper conversations and more explicitly generate this, this meaning from, from our work. 
but if that's the long-term kind of deep work, uh, how do we sort this out in the short term? I've got a problem. I've got a bunch of people uh, who are careering towards the cliff edge. In fact, a few of them have fallen off already. Uh, it's just, this is kind of mental health first aid at this point, um, and, and I've got to do something about this. And uh, I will confess that the approach that I've taken um, uh, is somewhat dubious in, uh, in its ethics, uh, in the fact that uh, the, the title of my course and book, The Productive Researcher, is a little misleading. Um, uh, some people have said uh, perhaps a more accurate title would be The Mindful Researcher, and I, I agree with them on that. Uh, but the conclusion I reached was that the people that we need to reach are the workaholics. Now, the reasons that you are a workaholic are typically deep. You're running from something. Uh, there's a sense of, uh, of, of insufficient, uh, uh, intrinsic esteem that you are now trying to replace uh, with extrinsic measures of esteem uh, that give you a pat on the back and say, yeah, you're an okay person. So uh, it's the workaholics that we need to target. And those workaholics are typically pursuing something deeper than just the papers, accolades, or, or whatever it might be that, uh, that, that they are pursuing on, uh, on the surface of things. Uh, and the problem with workaholics uh, is that they are always busy uh, and you can put on a training for them uh, and uh, they will cite their busyness as the reason that they won't come. Uh, and so we regularly have this problem that uh, if you put on uh, some kind of training to do with resilience, with, uh, with mental health, physical health, work-life balance, uh, those are not the people who are going to turn up. Uh, I, I, yeah, I realise I've got a problem with work-life balance, but I've got even more pressing problems because I've got a deadline tomorrow. Uh, in fact, I've got three deadlines tomorrow, and that's why I'm working all night and I don't have time to come to your training. Thanks very much. However, uh, actually, the, I think the solution to my problems is if I could just become a bit more productive. That will give me the time I need to do everything that I need to do and I will get out of this trap. And of course, we know uh, time, uh, an additional time is not how to get out of the trap at something deeper. But that's where everyone goes. So let's uh, go to people where they instinctively go, which is productivity equals more time back, I can achieve more. Uh, and so the Productive Researcher is a course for workaholics and anyone else <laughs> who wants to become more productive. And I give you tools that help you become more productive, but I also then get you to rethink your conception of what it means to be productive and what you are trying to produce and what you care most deeply about producing. And that then enables us to have a conversation about priorities, because most people who are too busy are actually running around like headless chickens trying to do everything, and they're not good at prioritising. And I don't have time to prioritise because I've got all these things I've got to do, and I've just added another five things to my to-do list. Can you hurry up, Mark, because I need to get to the point, please? <laughs> so... So busy people don't prioritise, but now we get to, okay, so what is that one thing that you really, really need to do, your most important work? Well, it's that seminal paper, monograph, that project, whatever it is, okay. Uh, so if you're actually going to get that done, then you need to make some hard choices. You need to make priorities, which means you have to say no to certain things and say, yeah, uh, high priority, low priority. But now, can you tell me why it is that that is the most important thing to you? And uh, can we get to the level of how this thing that you say is so important expresses part of who you are, expresses your professional, perhaps your other identities? 
and how those identities themselves have been shaped by your values. And now perhaps you can tell me why that task holds such deep purpose and gives you such a sense of meaning. And why in fact the fact that you haven't been able to prioritize this uh, is actually taking it, giving you this sense of meaninglessness and purpose, purposelessness and rudderlessness. That's why there's now this thirst. Okay, I want to make that thing happen. Great. But now that we've done that deeper work and can see why that thing is so important based on our identities and our values and the sense of purpose and meaning, perhaps we can apply that to the rest of our work and start to reprioritize our to-do lists, not by urgency and importance and who's jumping up and down and shouting loudest, but instead by these deeper senses of, of, of purpose and priority and meaning. Um, and now this is when we start to be able to say, yeah, actually that thing that I was doing really nice in terms of prestige and, and giving me an ego boost, but actually that's not what it's about. And I don't really need that. Uh, and here's something I should be prioritizing instead. And maybe that's a job that someone else needs to do now. And in fact, that would be an opportunity for them. Uh, and great, we start to, to, to reorganize. So uh, one final thing that I'd like to, to add to this, and then I'm going to, to move to, to Joyce and, uh, and get your questions coming in the chat uh, if you've got questions for me in particular, but uh, hopefully others for, uh, for Joyce as well. Because what we're doing today is we are initiating, and I hope this is the initiation of a conversation about our mental health, our physical health, uh, and how we can reorganize what we do deeply so we can become more resilient. And as a few of you have talked about, it's really important that we have these conversations explicitly, that we normalize talking about failure, about mistakes, about what went wrong, uh, that, uh, that we normalize uh, talking about our, our mental health as much as, yeah, I've got COVID at the moment. Yeah, I'm having a really hard day at the moment uh, and I need to take some, some time off uh, later on this week. So uh, uh, this, this is what's going on with me. I don't need to give you the details, but let's, let's normalize talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, as well. And so I've been trying to do this uh, through my trainings. Um, uh, I regularly talk uh, about my own struggles with mental health in my trainings, uh, in my social media, uh, and, uh, and in my podcasts. And, uh, and for me, what this is doing is creating a more compassionate culture. Uh, and that's about me, my teams, whether it's the fast track team, uh, our team here, um, whether it's my work teams um, uh, or whether it's your teams. I think we can all begin to create a more compassionate culture just by uh, self-disclosing where we're at and being a bit more authentic. And the reason this is so important is that a compassionate culture is for me at the heart of an impact culture. If we define compassion as empathy that takes action. It is this act of seeing, uh, deeply seeing our colleagues and where they are at. And now I can see that you're struggling being able to take action to help them uh, in the same way that we do for our colleagues beyond the academy and the challenges they're facing as we take action to then achieve impact from, uh, from, our, from our research. Uh, and it is this step of, uh, of, of self-disclosure and, and talking openly that actually gives others permission to do the same and to realise, crucially, that they are not alone, which, as Dr. Kristen Neff from University of Austin, Texas, suggests is one of the first steps towards self-compassion. And, of course, we can't have an outwardly compassionate culture if we don't first have compassion towards ourselves. And so this could be about uh, learning from failure, seminars, 
Um, you know, in fact, uh, it could be about writing up uh, our, our, our impact. I, I was uh, interviewing this morning for the podcast um, two early career researchers who had written about uh, how their fieldwork went wrong. And one of the researchers was saying how challenging this was. This is her first paper, and her first paper is going to be about failure. Uh, what does that mean uh, for how people will see her? Or what does that mean about her manifesto for the kind of researcher she wants to be, which goes against the grain, that is authentic? and that critically thinks about the work that she does uh, and adds value to others. Um, so some really valuable conversations that I think we can have, not just now, uh, but more widely. So that's my attempt to set the scene on this. Uh, thanks, Cindy, for uh, adding something into to the chat here. Empathy in action or that takes action. Absolutely. Um, uh, this definition of compassion so important and hopefully clear to you now why <coughs> compassion uh, is at the heart of any impact culture by definition. Now, uh, Joyce, you want to just start with a, a brief recap on who you are because a few people joined late and um, I want to then ask you a few questions because um, as Joyce will explain, Joyce regularly works with uh, researchers one-to-many as I do but also one-to-one -one as a coach and specialises in working around these kinds of issues. So thanks again, Mark, for that really interesting summary of an enormous topic. So yeah, that was great and lovely to speak to you all um, in your introductions. But just by way of introducing myself again, I am Dr Joyce Reid. I'm a practising health coach. Um, I My background is that I worked in the NHS for 12 years as a doctor um, and ended up um, burnt out with compassion fatigue and really quite unwell to the point where I had had to take the hard decision to leave my job. Um, at that point I came on board with Fast Track Impact to do the nuts and bolts as Mark was getting busier um, and really started to explore this idea of research impact. Um, through that process I learned an awful lot about health and well-being, about lifestyle medicine and really dug into the research um, in this area. I managed to uh, do lots and lots of experiments with that and eventually, over several years, completely heal myself from physical burnout, mental burnout um, and really started to see how utterly powerful lifestyle medicine can be. Um, during the pandemic, I retrained as a coach with a focus on health, but really for me, that is incredibly all-encompassing. Um, what does health mean? Well, there's a big question. It's definitely more than the absence of disease, and really, it's incredibly holistic, the work that I do. You can't have good mental health without good physical health, without good work-life balance, um, without the whole of your life singing to that whole rather than being so compartmentalised as we tend to look at it nowadays without intentional thought um, in the culture that we live in drags us along that road. So really it's about how coaching can start to um, find some answers to these questions that have been posed today um, and yeah I look forward to answering some of your questions Mark. <laughs> Great um, and hopefully questions from all of you yes, as well. Yes absolutely. Um, and if you're listening on the on the podcast, because uh, if, if you hadn't uh, heard we are recording this segment for the podcast, we will stop uh, once it moves into discussion. 
uh, do come uh, back with your questions, whether it's via email or on social media, and both Joyce and I will do our best to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. So uh, I told you one of the things I get is uh, people coming to me just saying, if only I had more time, if only I could get uh, rid of a task, uh, a module, get some extra support, that's the solution to work-life balance. <clears throat> And I think we all realise that it's not, it's something deeper than that. But tell me, what are the kind of things that academics are, are coming to you with? And, and so this is maybe at a different point in the process by the time they've reached out to someone like you. But give me a sense of some of the challenges that people come to you with. Yeah, um, I think you've probably touched on most of them already, Mark. But certainly, um, I don't have enough time is a, a big key thing. And also... Um, there's this sense of overwhelm that quite often academics come with of really not knowing where to go first in terms of how do I sort this out? I know there's a big problem here and I've completely lost connection with health and well-being, but I just don't know where to start. So I would say a lack of time, busyness, overwhelm. Um, oftentimes people come with just a, a heaviness, a sense of, of just, you know, just perhaps being bored or or exhausted or you know a combination of those types of feelings anxiety is a really big problem as well people who do reach out to me for individual coaching um they feel anxious because of their workload they feel anxious because they know they need to do something they feel about it they feel anxious because they don't feel well Um, and then that forms a negative feedback loop of um, issues that go around sleep and rest and prioritization and obviously when you get to that point of overwhelm and anxiety it's very difficult to prioritize your own health and well-being Um, So those would be a flavour of the sorts of things. There's also this sort of general thing that I've observed within academics, researchers and, you know, people working within academia. This is not just people working within research, as we've mentioned already. It's people working throughout the sector. It's just this sort of nebulous feeling that they don't have control over their own work-life balance, over their own jobs lists, if you like, and, and they don't know if they can prioritise, if that will be allowed by managers, um, by the university system, they feel quite in a straitjacket a lot of the time. Um, and I see you nodding here, Mark, because um, obviously you're working within that. So those are the things that people come with. And if, if you want me to now, I can go into the sorts of ways that as a coach, I can begin to unpick that and support people to start to remove those barriers. Yeah, because I, I think that, that sense of overwhelm, I think, is something that a lot of you will probably all recognise as well. We all get to those points of overwhelm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I guess there's not going to be one answer to this. It will be different for everyone. But how do mm. you help an academic or anyone from, from academia who, who comes in with this complete overwhelm? I have no idea where on earth to start. How do you help someone find where to start with the overwhelm? Yeah, well, this is the part that coaching is so powerful for. And this is the part of coaching that I I love to do. Because when you see people start to actually connect with the answers, start to remove the barriers for themselves, that sense of empowerment is really vast and very inspiring to watch. 
So just to let me set the scene, first of all, for coaching. So I've heard you use some very interesting words, which I would like to pick you up on. So these are, um, we should be doing this. We shouldn't be doing that. I need to do this. I need to do that. So let's just think about those words initially. They, they're quite pressure point words. So the first thing that I would do as a coach is very much set the scene as a coach rather than a mentor or a boss or even different forms of colleagues. So as a coach, I am in a different relationship with a group of people or with an individual person. And quite often I describe this as um, the whole of the coaching journey is a horse and a cart. So the horse is the coaching journey. The cart is me and the driver is the individual client or the group of people who are um, who I'm working with, which means that the responsibility and the control is very much in the reins of the driver. I am merely there to support the journey and to help the horse and cart bump over obstacles and barriers in their way. So if we just hold that metaphor kind of very close in our minds as we go through the next um, answer to the question here. So basically the way that I would start to unpick this um, uses quite a few fundamental coaching tools. So the first one I, I would use is the Carl Rogers idea of unconditional positive regard. And, and this is empathy in action, I would argue. This is what Carl Rogers was meaning here. Um, so empathy being very different from sympathy. Sympathy is very much jumping in there with the person that you're working with and feeling all of those feelings um, as your own and therefore you cannot help but relate fundamentally to that situation that they're in and you bring yourself in there with them. This is um, very prevalent within society, we all do it, but if we just think about what that does for a moment, sympathy very much jumps you into that journey with the person and, and it can be very difficult difficult then to remove yourself from that and we've touched on this a lot already today. I think most of you brought up this issue of finding it very difficult to switch off from people that you're interviewing, families that you're working with, um, other junior or senior or, or at the same level colleagues who you're really trying to support. So so this first, I just so just think about this idea of sympathy versus empathy. Empathy is more like walking side by side with another person. You hear everything that you're saying. You can relate to it, but you don't jump into their journey with them. You're there side by side. Um, you're just supporting them along the way. And that's what a coach does. And the main thing I think that comes out of this kind of difference between sympathy and empathy is that responsibility for that person's journey and well-being and work-life balance very gently becomes back, it gets put back in their court. The ball is passed back to them, the baton is passed back to them, to use some metaphor here. And as I do that process, um, go through that process in my initial sessions with individual clients, um, it, something really empowering starts to happen. 
people start to realise that they can begin to tackle overwhelm because they're in charge. They can begin to make decisions because they're in charge of prioritising. Just simply recognising that intentionally um, actually taking responsibility for their own health and well-being in a gentle, self-compassionate way, they can then begin to make these decisions for themselves. That particular empathy responsibility process in conjunction with doing work around digging into meaning, values and, and who they are. I mean, some people working within academia, in fact, a lot of people I would suggest nowadays, have really lost touch with themselves. And I always do a little bit of work on this with people in the beginning of their journey, because if you don't know who you are, it's very difficult to make decisions that are actually remaining in line with your own idea of vision values um, and who you really are as an authentic human being. And I would argue that in, in, a, in order to do a lot of the work around prioritisation, removing the overwhelm, being able to prioritise self-care, really comes back to this idea of reconnecting with the self. And so we would do a lot of that work initially as well with empathy and with self-compassion. Let me just unpack this self-compassion a little bit before um, we move on, Mark, if that's okay. Mm. So Mark has already touched on Kristen Neff's work. I would also like to draw your attention to somebody who I deeply respect, Dr Gabor Mate, who has worked um, with victims of trauma and drug abuse um, throughout his career. He's done a lot of research on compassionate inquiry. He has built a, a, a beautiful course um, in how to, to really use compassion to unpick barriers to change and to self-care. So the components of self-compassion are, number one, in this moment, acknowledge that things are difficult. Acknowledge suffering. Acknowledge how hard something is. Acknowledge how you feel. And sometimes with people, I will use um, an emotional intelligence framework here for them to really start to have emotional language. Because we know um, from the, the kind of beginning to be burgeoning area of emotional intelligence research that we can be more resilient as human beings if we've got a greater diversity of emotional language. So I bring that into the first part of self-compassion. That's how many words can we use to describe how we feel right now to acknowledge, wow, this is a stressful day. I feel pressured, stressed, anxious, sad, um, uh, you know, angry, perhaps frustrated, all of those things. And let's just sit and feel that. Feel it in your body. Feel it in your mind. You know, do you feel a, a gripping in your hands, a tightness in your chest, a buzzing in your legs? Lots of people feel this differently and just sit with that for a moment and let it pass. Secondly, is this idea that in self-compassion, we're not alone. In the human experience, in the academic sphere, 
many, many of us feel these things on a daily basis, but we don't talk to each other about it, and we can therefore feel very alone. Simply acknowledging that pretty much everybody has felt these feelings before, and there's nothing wrong with me. This is normal. This is a part of the life that we are living now. So that's the second part of self-compassion. The third part of self-compassion is, given parts one and two, what can I do for myself right now, in the moment, to really help, to nourish myself? And I use this word nourish all the time. I do think Kristen Neff uses it as well. But this is a really good word to use. Language actually very much matters. Nourish talks about what's going to be good for me, not what can I use as some sort of crutch like caffeine or sugar or working even more, what can I use that will be nourishing to my body, to my mind, to my well-being, um, that, to my meaning and purpose in this moment and really deeply connect with yourself in order to answer that question. This is obviously a mindfulness process and can be used as such. It can be used as meditation. Kristen Neff has many, many tools on her website, as does Gabor Mate, um, if you want to use those too. And I can see um, Iona has popped in here um, an emotional wheel for emotional vocabulary. Brilliant. There are tons of brilliant um, tools like this online. Um, I use a particular one um, by Professor Mark Brackett. Um, he's done some fantastic work on emotional intelligence with schools um, and is really doing some great work there um, as well. So yeah, that that's where I would really start a journey with academics. And academics are a very um, particular group of people drawn to the work that they do through an absolute inherent curiosity, through huge levels of personal motivation and drive, um, and through this insatiable desire for knowledge and understanding. And, that, and that, those three things are hugely inspiring. And what I try to do is to remind people that that's why they came to academia, and you know whether it be scientific or in the arts and humanities, um, and that actually this is where we're getting back to. We're getting back to that spark, that reason that you came to this in the first place. You know, let's just put this particular, these qualities of you that are unique, that have drawn you to this unique way of working, and let's just acknowledge that there is uniqueness here within the academic sphere. And this is why some of the problems that you, some of the barriers that you face have become your Achilles heel um, because of that inherent drive that is insatiable, that curiosity, that passion that you have for your work. Mm. So powerful. And I mean, that, that sense that I, my question to you was around how, how you can get over the overwhelm and, and actually a key characteristic of overwhelm is that sense that you are out of control mm -hmm. and so the first step it seems uh, is about giving people back this sense of yeah you know what actually I do have a lot of control over a lot of this mm -hmm. stuff and if I do have control over that then uh, if I can reconnect with myself and do some compassionate inquiry uh, in a safe space, um, mm -hmm. like you described in the cart um, at, at the back of the of the horse, then perhaps now, based on those the, that that deeper self understanding, I might now be able to use some of that 
self-efficacy mm-hmm. to prioritize some things that are important to me such as um as, as self-care absolutely so can i just yeah. pick up on that point mark there that you've made the word that springs to mind as you're talking about this is this word permission mm. so i touched on the fact that i'd heard you use language like shoulds shouldn't need need to not let's Put those to the side for a moment because they are in our vocabulary culturally within academia and let's talk more about permission. Can I give myself permission to think that I might be able to make one or two choices here um, for me? You know, think about that. When was the last time somebody gave you permission to do that? When was the last time you gave yourself permission to do something? Mm. And those type, nourish, permission, those types of words are are way more empowering Mm. rather than wielding the stick of shoulds and shouldn'ts, which is, is, you know, quite a toxic way to think um, and can provoke anxiety, overwhelm. And then Mm. you get to this kind of frozen amygdala state, if you like, of just not being able to make any decisions at all for yourself <clears throat> yeah yeah and I think a really quite powerful experience I've often find in, in the in the trainings I do around this is, is around asking people to give themselves permission to just spend half an hour mm-hmm. on a Monday morning doing something that connects them with their sense of self and their values and it can be a work thing if you're doing it in work hours uh, let's chip away at that uh, that paper reading something um, uh, there's going to nourish me professionally for example but it could be going for a walk and and some other kind of self-care type thing that you do playing an instrument etc and uh, and I'm I'm asking people half an hour on a Monday morning see if you can start your week by creating this positive feedback loop now to this sense of wow yeah I'm doing the important stuff I've reconnected with myself. I'm going into my week feeling full of empowerment and I can do this stuff, which means I focus rather than distract myself because of all the negative feedbacks we were talking about before. And I get the stuff done and I check in again next Monday morning. Or maybe it's half an hour every morning if you can get up to that. Um, or an hour on a Monday morning. But already people are saying, but, but, but if you have any idea, Mark, of how busy I am, I cannot make half an hour. And I'm like, just hold on a minute. Just imagine that one of your colleagues, imagine you are supervising someone uh, and one of your team members uh, that you're supervising comes to you and says, Mark, I want just half an hour per week to work on something that is really important to me that I care about. You'd be like, yeah, of course. Uh, And if you can't do that, then you have to ask yourself a much deeper question. Well, why is it that I don't have enough value in me mm-hmm. to just be able to give myself half an hour for something important. And it's just half an hour, but if this is important, I'm starting my week or my day with this because I know from former experience that when I leave this to a reward at the end of the day, uh, life happens and I end up delaying that and delaying it and it never happens. So yeah, half an hour is not a lot to ask for. And yet a lot of people, this is the moment at which they realize, Okay, I've clearly got problems, and actually I can see the nature of this problem um, in terms of me prioritising the important stuff 
it's not about the time. It's about how, the reasons why I can't prioritise mm-hmm. what I believe is important. Uh, and that's a, a much deeper journey that you have to, have to go on then. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's one very practical thing that, that, that I hear a lot of people saying, yeah, this works. And a year later, in, in an hour per week, is all it takes to actually write a paper if you've got some data, for example. Mm-hmm. I wonder what other work you do and any other practical ideas that you've got that can help people, especially around this kind of boundary setting type thing and when do I finish for the day, the weekend, etc.? Yeah, I mean, boundary setting is a big part of this. And I think, again, it's about permission. Um, but just to build on your example there, <coughs> from a from more of a health and wellness, more holistic point of view, so just in work and out of work, um, I've worked with a couple of academic clients who um, really couldn't see through to, to even make half an hour once a week to prioritise the key things that gave them um, meaning and value. So what we did there, um, one particular um, person, uh, in fact a couple of folk have used this, is to just use one minute between meetings to do some breath work or some meditation in order to just feel like they had a breath between meetings when, you know, especially as now a lot of people are working in a hybrid fashion, life can just feel like boof, 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 stacked up on top of each other. Um, You know, and really to just take that minute or two minutes between meetings, even once or twice a day, can make the difference between feeling utterly overwhelmed and just feeling like you have time to reconnect with who you are in order to make bigger decisions um, in a more clearer mind. So that's the sort of level that I would boil. Some, Some people need to come down to that level of one or two minutes, up to five minutes. Um, and again, when we speak about boundary setting, uh, this this is really interesting because I think it's it's it really works better if you um, think about health and wellness as a whole. So we're not talking about just a working being here. We're talking about people who have home lives, who uh, who balance, um, you know, community support, who like to go out and spend time with friends, who are musicians or artists or singers or like to run, you know, and really reconnecting with all of those parts of yourself and starting that narrative with yourself that you're not just a workhorse. You are a full human being and in order to produce your best work um, it's really important to remember that you are a person in the fullest sense of the word and in order to do that that work it's it's really important to spend time doing all of these other things that make you who you are in order that you can bring that sparkle um, that that drive that curiosity back to produce the best work of your life so it's really again coming back to connecting with who you are um, on a deeper level and that starts to kind of erode away this idea of and this feeling of overwhelm of loss of control that somebody else is in charge of your life and of your time schedule yeah fantastic so I think a a very similar theme running through um, both what I've said and both what we've heard from Joyce um so uh, I'm going to wrap up <coughs> my interview kind of, with, with Joyce at this point and, uh, and say thank you. Um, loads of fascinating insights. Um, and 
Uh, and great. So thank you, Joyce. So hopefully you've found that useful, insightful, perhaps there's some new practical ideas that you're going to go away with or just you're reframing this whole thing, thinking about this uh, a little bit more deeply than just how do I help people manage uh, what they're coming to me with, which is very often I need more time. Uh, so uh, some really important issues, I think, that uh, that we've discussed in today's episode. And my challenge to you now is to go away and have that conversation with your colleagues. Start having these conversations full stop so that we can normalise failure, uh, normalise being off work for multiple reasons, not just our physical health, um, but uh, then managing that, working with our teams to create a more compassionate culture around us. Because remember, the more that we talk about the challenges that we're facing, the more we give our colleagues permission to talk about the challenges that they are facing, the more that we all begin to have an appreciation that, yeah, this is hard and I'm not alone. And together we can be so much more resilient. <laughs>